This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Buss, and I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss the importance of testing supplements with health and wellness expert Andrea Donsky. We'll find out about how to achieve your nutrition goals for the year with registered dietitian Shauna Lindzen. We'll learn how RSV is impacting seniors with Dr. Jai Hu. And lastly, we'll talk about modifiable risks of dementia with Jay Ingram. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot of healthy headlines. In a new study from the University of Washington, researchers can detect toxic small aggregates of a particular protein in the blood of individuals with Alzheimer's disease, as well as individuals who showed no signs of cognitive impairment at the time of the blood sample being taken, but who developed it at a later date. This blood test picks up oligomers, or small, misfolded aggregates, of the amyloid beta protein, which scientists believe triggers the development of Alzheimer's. A year-long study of the dietary habits of over 9,000 Australians by the University of Sydney has backed growing evidence that highly processed and refined foods are the leading contributor of rising obesity rates in the Western world. The study backs up the protein leverage hypothesis, which argues that people overeat fats and carbohydrates because of the body's strong appetite for protein, which the body actively favors over anything else. Because so much of modern diets consist of highly processed and refined foods, which are low in protein, people are driven to consume more energy-dense foods until they satisfy their protein demand. As people consume more junk foods or highly processed and refined foods, they dilute their dietary protein and increase their risk of being overweight and obese, which we know increases the risk of chronic disease, says lead author Dr. Amanda Gretsch. For decades, doctors and scientists have known that exercise is important for older adults. It can lower risk for cardiac issues, strengthen bones, improve mood, and provide other benefits. Likewise, mindfulness training reduces stress, and stress can be bad for the brain. So many have thought that exercise and or mindfulness training might improve brain function. In a large study, researchers had hypothesized that if older adults exercised regularly, practiced mindfulness, or did both, there might be cognitive benefits. But that's not what they found. The lead scientist in this study out of the Washington University School of Medicine, Dr. Eric Lenzi, MD, said the study's findings don't mean that exercise or mindfulness training won't help improve cognitive function in older adults, only that these practices don't appear to boost cognitive performance in healthy people without impairments. So the takeaway point is you should still exercise and you should still practice mindfulness. It's good for you. That was your tonic quick shot. I'll be joined by Andrea Donsky in a moment. But first, a little bit of business. Are you stressed out, feeling down, having trouble sleeping? 
New Roots Herbal offers natural supplements to help take the edge off, relax, enhance your mood, and sleep better. Discover de-stress, Merry Mind Omega, and Sleep 8. Natural ingredients and guaranteed purity for a better day and a restful night. Find these and other New Roots Herbal products exclusively at quality health food stores. And for more information, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. Andrea Donsky is a registered holistic nutritionist with 20 years experience in natural health and wellness. She's the co-founder and editor-in-chief of NaturallySavvy.com and a regular contributor to this show. Welcome back, my friend. How are you? I am great. Thanks for having me again, Jamie. Always love chatting. Yeah, so most of the time when we, you and I or others on the show, talk about supplements, we're talking about the efficacies of the specific supplement. But today we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, We're going to talk about nutraceuticals as a class and the efficacies and safety protocols of those supplements. Okay? Does that make sense? That makes sense. I love it. And I think it's an important conversation to have. I agree. And about time we did it. So let's get to it. So let's ask the $64,000 question up front. Are the nutraceuticals that we buy in Canada, are they safe? (laughs) Great question. (laughs) Actually, they are. So yeah. So in general, Health Canada... I don't know if you know this or not, is stricter than other countries around the world when it comes to supplements. So the good news is the safety standards in Canada are excellent. Having said that, there are different levels of quality when it comes to supplements or nutraceuticals. So knowing which brands have quality supplements and ingredients that actually work is really important. And as consumers, we have the right to ask companies questions. Like a lot of times we take things and we don't realize or we don't think like, maybe I should like email a company or I don't want to bother them or, you know, how do I get in touch with them? Like there are all these questions that come up, but you don't realize that we actually as consumers have the right to ask companies questions so that we can trust the brand that we're buying. It's interesting. You and I have been in health and wellness a long time. We've known each other a long time. And I remember, and I'm sure you do too, there was a time when Health Canada did not deal with supplements and it was the Wild West in terms mm-hmm. of quality and efficacies, where yeah. like, like people could just make all kinds of claims, and it wasn't necessarily the case. And I hope that the listeners and consumers of supplements in general really appreciate the fact that it is regulated now, because I think it lends a credibility to the entire industry. It does, and I've learned so much like over the last three years in terms of like what consumers should look for and like, well, why is testing even important? So that's why I'm excited that we're having this conversation. So what should companies be testing for? Like, what have you found? Okay, so a lot of different things. So, but three main things. So number one, identity, meaning what are the ingredients? What are the ingredients that are in the product that the company says is in there? Yeah. The potency, so the actual strength of the ingredients. And then the purity, like do they have any contaminations, right? So if I put that into perspective, let's, let's talk about purity for one minute. And, I know, and we'll talk about it more if you want to, you know, a little bit later on. But solvents are used to extract therapeutic molecules from the ingredients. But you don't want any residues of those solvents left on the product in the final product, right? Yeah. So you have to test for that. So identity, potency, purity. Those are the three main things that companies should be testing for. Yeah, it's interesting we even talk about identity, like, but we'll come to that. It's kind of funny, I think. Um, <laughs> but it's true. Like, we need to know, like, is it what it says it is, right? Yeah. So yeah. But not everybody does this. Do you have an example of a Canadian company that's actually doing proper testing? Yeah. So I've been working, and I know you know this, like I've been working with New Roots Herbal for a really long time. Yeah. And 
you know, I recently, and they've been asking me to do this for a couple of years, and then with everything got shut down, I didn't have a chance to do it. So we just ended up doing a virtual tour, and they shared their labs. So they showed me where they test all their products. So they had their director, his name is Serge Coate, and they had him give me the tour of their lab. And what really stood out for me, though, is, first of all, how passionate he is. Like, I, I love when you speak to a company and, you know, you see how passionate they are about what they're doing. And Serge was so passionate about his job, which his job is to run a testing lab. So I thought that was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he was telling me, he was kind of sharing what makes New Roots Herbal very different from other testing labs. And the thing that stood out the most for me is that they're an ISO 1705 accredited lab. So what does that mean for those who don't know that very numeric title is? <laughs> so it comes down to quality. So ISO labs are standardized and they're inspected labs by ISO, which stands for International Standards Organization. So I'll repeat that. So International Standards Organization. So all of the ISO labs worldwide meet the same strict standards so you can trust what you're buying has met their stringent criteria. So everything from like state-of-the-art equipment to their staff to their training all, it's basically the highest quality lab with the strictest standards in the world. And it doesn't get any higher than that or any stricter. Okay. What is third-party testing? You see that a lot, right? Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. So basically, to simplify it, it means that a company is sending its ingredients or finished products for testing to an independent lab. So having the ISO 17025 ensures the results of the third-party testing is valid and accurate. So are they doing testing for others? Is that, is that what it means? So what they're doing is they're doing testing for others, but they're primarily testing their own products. So they're testing okay. for um, New Roots Herbal products. Got it. Okay. So why is New Roots Herbal unique when it comes to testing? Like, So the first thing is, so they're always testing for the identity, as I mentioned yeah. just a minute ago. But why is this important? So let me get into a little bit of the detail. So many raw materials, when they're shipped to a company, they're shipped in barrels. And all of those barrels look the same. So take powders, for example. They come in different colors, white, beige, gray, like whatever those individual ingredients are, right? And they all look and or smell the same. Same thing goes for oils. To the naked eye, how would you know what that ingredient is? So ingredient suppliers provide something called a COA, which is a certificate of analysis. But sometimes the information on the COA is wrong or omitted. So what New Roots does is they take the extra precaution to test everything to make sure every single ingredient is, in fact, what it says it is. So they want to be 150% sure. And they do that using a special technology to examine the DNA of the raw materials to ensure that it conforms with the COA or certificate of analysis coming from the supplier. It's interesting. I haven't toured a New Roots Herbal's new facilities yet. But I have been to other uh, nutraceutical manufacturers and they've told me the same story. And and I think part of the issue, it's been exacerbated because of the supply chain breakages over COVID where companies, you know, they don't necessarily produce the raw materials in Canada. That's a lot of it is imported. So Mm -hmm. so they may be sourcing from new sources who they don't have the reliance on. Right. Like it could be a new a new company and the price may be right, but they don't know if they're getting actually what they're purchased, which seems crazy, right? Like it seems ridiculous that you're ordering, you're, you're ordering X and you're getting Y, but it's actually, it happens more than you would think, strangely. Oh, absolutely. You know, and Nurus doesn't take any chances, you know, and, and that's what I love about them. So when I took the tour, Serge mentioned that since suppliers know they test for everything, 
they actually don't get as many imposters as they used to. So they used to get it a lot more yeah. than they get it now because, right, because they have this accreditation, right? So he shared a story where they used to get oregano oil shipped to them, but it was the wrong species. Right. You know, there are over 50 different species of oregano oil, for example, let's say, you know, found in nature, but only a couple of them have therapeutic levels of a compound called carbacrol, which is what we look at when we're looking at oregano oil. And if you don't get the right species, then it potentially won't have the same therapeutic benefit. So testing, you know, the identity of that oregano is critical. And if it doesn't pass, they, it gets rejected and they send it back. Okay. So that's testing to make sure they're getting the right thing. You also mentioned testing for potency. So what does that look like? So think of it this way. So when you pick up a supplement and you read the supplement facts, right? You turn it over, you read the supplement facts, you can see how strong or potent a product is. Right. So take holy basil, for example, one of my favorite adaptogens. Love adaptogens, botanicals that help us cope better with stress, which, by the way, we all need help with. <laughs> yep. Right? So yeah. like for me, so I love, love holy basil. So holy basil, its therapeutic benefit comes from something called ursolic acid. Some products, so if you go to the store and you could, you know, for those of you listening, the next time you're at the store, you can test this out and see for yourself how this works. So some companies or products won't mention the amount of ursolic acid on the holy basil label. Whereas others will say maybe it has a 2%. New Roots is, there says 10%. And their lab is able to verify and confirm this amount. So the potency makes a big difference when it comes to the efficacy of a product. For sure. And it's interesting, you know, people sometimes shop for their supplements based on price. And the truth of the matter is, you know, if it's too good to be true, like if you're buying a supplement that's half the cost of another supplement, in likelihood, it's because the potency isn't the same. So you're not really saving any money. You're just getting a product that is inferior in, in terms of the potency. Completely potency. It could be the fact that maybe they don't do third-party testing. Like there's yeah. so many things that come into play. That's why I always say when it comes to supplements, it's a tricky thing because of course price always comes, you know, plays a factor or plays a role, but you get what you pay for. Right. I really believe that. And from what I've learned over no, the last it's entirely really do. It's entirely true. And, and, yeah. and you know, because supplements, you know, some of them, not all of them, there's, you know, certainly supplements that are, are not expensive at all, but sometimes they get pricey. You don't want to be spending your money foolishly, right? You don't want to be spending your money on a product that isn't going to work, number one. But number two, you kind of get what you pay for in this arena, you know? You could, and there's so many nuances with supplements, right? And, yeah. and this is something that definitely gets me going because, you know, someone will try something and they say, they'll buy something, let's say, that's inferior, inferior quality or just because the price is less and they'll say, well, it doesn't work. Well, what do you mean? It doesn't work because it's everything you just said, right? So exactly, like when you're buying a supplement, you want to look for that quality because A, you want it to work. Right. And when you want it to work because you're paying, you're paying the ingredients are what really matter. Right. So everything exactly. we talked about. Exactly. OK, so you were talking off the top about solvents that are used to to process the supplements. I, for one, I raised my hand. I don't want solvents in something that I'm consuming. So let's talk about that for a second. Yeah, absolutely. So contaminants are a huge issue when it comes to products. So let's take fish oil, for example. We're going to have lots of examples today. Okay, good. <laughs> it's an easy way to share, yeah. kind of like, you know, to, to explain it. So when it comes to fish oil, I see a lot of products that claim they're, you know, they're free or safe from heavy metals, right? But that's a relative term. So heavy metals need to be below a specific amount to be able to use that term. So the certificate of analysis, or the COAs that I mentioned earlier, show that information. But what's interesting about New Roots is that they take that allowable limit to the next level and make sure that those heavy metals are well under that allowable amount. 
So new roots, what they do is they test for heavy metals like lead, mercury, cadmium, and arsenic. And the technology they use is able to detect these compounds to as little as one part per trillion. I'm going to repeat that because that's so crazy. One part per trillion. It's actually, they use the same technology that the World Anti-Doping Agency uses to test for athletes. It's that precise. And they also test for like over 80 different pesticides, PCBs, and solvent residues. So we've discussed the sort of testing that goes on when they are actually producing the supplements. But what about the finished products? Yeah, so they test, you can test it, so you can definitely test the finished product as well. So the ingredients is where they start their testing, and then once they get the go-ahead on the ingredients, then they send the product out to get tested on the final product as well. So they get cleared. So they have a whole microbiology lab where they can do that as well. Okay, so let's talk about how the supplements sort of engage with the body, right? So like, they're meant to break down, right? Like you want your supplements to, I guess, for lack of a better word. disintegrate? Yeah, disintegration or dissolving, right? So Mm -hmm. what about that? So, yeah, so again, you want to look for a lab that's going to test disintegration and what you're breaking down, and you want to make sure that it happens in the right place. So let's take probiotics, for example, or delicate enzymes. You want to make sure that they disintegrate in the intestines and not in the stomach, so they're tested. So New Roots, what they do is they'll test their products to make sure that, because they use enteric coating for their probiotics, yep. that the enteric coating actually doesn't break down until it reaches the intestine so that it doesn't get destroyed by the gastric acid. So, Andrea, all this testing, I would imagine it increased the costs of the uh, supplements, does it? You know, specifically for New Roots, their philosophy is that they never want to compromise on quality, right? So testing is part of the owner's, his name is Peter, it's part of his values. To him, there's like, it's like they're synonymous. The company and testing are synonymous. And in fact, he's so adamant about testing and quality that he built his own analytical lab, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. And having their own lab helps to keep those expenses under control. That makes sense. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me, Jamie. That was Andrea Donsky. For more information about her, please visit andreadonsky.com. For great health and wellness interviews and articles, visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss how to achieve your nutritional goals for the new year on The Tonic. Are you stressed out, feeling down, having trouble sleeping? New Roots Herbal offers natural supplements to help take the edge off, relax, enhance your mood, and sleep better. Discover De-Stress, Merry Mind Omega, and Sleep 8. Natural ingredients and guaranteed purity for a better day and a restful night. Find these and other New Roots Herbal products exclusively at quality health food stores. And for more information, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. My next guest, Shauna Linzen, is a dietitian and nutritionist. She's a program developer and nutrition leader at Wellspring Cancer Support Network and enjoys seeing clients virtually and doing corporate wellness lectures. She runs practical cooking demonstrations that combine scientific knowledge with culinary education. Her demonstrations are unique, informative, delicious, and a lot of fun. And you can find a list of her nutrition classes and recipes at shaunalinzen.com. Welcome back to the show. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too, Jamie. So this is the time of year where everybody decides they're going to make 
big, huge, sweeping changes. And I think it's fair to say that a good number of the people that want to make those changes are concerned about their diet or perhaps their weight or combinations thereof. So I thought it'd be interesting if we talked about nutrition goals for the new year. What do you think? Yes, always such an interesting topic, right? Yeah. In terms of goals, I always think of personal goals. So you just can't make singularly nutrition goals. You have to make overall goals like sleep goals, relationship goals, activity goals, and they all have to kind of tie in together. Yeah, I agree with you. I would frame it differently. I would say even if your goal is to drop 10 pounds, for example, Mm -hmm. you're not just going to be able to do it by changing your diet, right? Exactly. Like, so for example, since September, I've been trying to lose weight. My weight goes up and down. That's my dirty little secret, right? Like my origin story is that I lost 52 pounds when I was 38. But the truth of it is the hard work comes in keeping it off. And sometimes it creeps up. Certainly over COVID, it crept up and, you know, it fluctuates from season to season. So I tried to lose some weight since September and I've been successful in doing so. And in doing so, I know that it's not just about my food intake, although that's a major component. It's also about getting a good night's sleep and making sure that I continue my exercise program, et cetera, et cetera, right? Exactly. You can't do just a singular goal because we're people, right? We have so many different things involved. It's not just nutrition. So personal goals, I would say with you especially, do you find that kind of the magic word is consistency? Yeah, there's two. So there's accountability is number one. Okay. And I wouldn't say consistency. I would say sustainability, right? Which is slightly different, meaning whatever it is you're doing, you have to continue doing, which is, I think, what you're saying, but in a slightly different way. Yeah. So sustainability, consistency, very similar. Yeah. And I find that people like to kind of get on something, then get off it, as opposed to making like, it's almost like they they sprint instead of running the marathon. Do you agree? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. So you say, I want to lose five pounds. And then I think you and I have discussed it before. There's all kinds of restrictive diets which will get you to that mark, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, truthfully, if you stick to a restrictive diet, you're going to lose the weight. But then the reason that they hop off those diets is they're not sustainable, right? It's not that they're choosing specifically to not diet anymore. It's just that it's too difficult to do for most people consistently, I think. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I think everyone feels the same way. They want to drop a few pounds. And the biggest problem is not developing goals and a plan where you can do consistent change. Right. You said that you started in September and you're continuing on the right path. I think that that's the way to go, right? Like if you can follow a behavior change for more than 30 days, like a month, then it's probably a good goal to have, like the goals that you've set, if you can follow them for more of a long-term basis. You know, but I find even with those goals and those changes, it's not a restrictive diet because I just don't do that, but it does require a mental discipline, you know? Absolutely. So for example, one of the things that I do is I do not eat after dinner anymore. When I'm finished dinner, that's it. No more eating. And that's your plan. Right, yeah. It's a goal. It's a plan. So you have your goal and plan set where you have found that successful in the past. 
Yeah. So it's going to be successful in the future. That's called lifestyle. You have figured out for your personal goals what will work, yeah. which is really important. What else are you seeing? Like, what are you seeing? The people that you consult with, what sort of personal goals do they have and what sort of things are they doing to achieve them? I see kind of the same thing. Like I see if people really want to move forward with their goals and their plans, it's not always weight loss, like in my profession. It's also, you know, improving your gut health. I tend to also, as I say, veer into more of the lifestyle changes with people like sleep hygiene, sleeping, you know, trying your best to sleep better. There are even sleep coaches out there, which is interesting. It's like a whole topic. Well, it's interesting you say that because in addition to not eating after dinner, I've been consciously trying to get to bed an hour earlier. Because, there you go. Because I find that if the more sleep I get, the easier it is for me to keep the pounds off. And, I, yeah. and, and it's twofold, right? It's because I'm not trying to stay awake. Sometimes I would eat late at night to sort of keep up, to stay awake, and which is bizarre. I acknowledge that. So if I'm going to bed earlier, I don't have to worry about that. And also, when you're sleeping, that's when your body regenerates itself. So if I'm exercising hard, that's when my body can use all the food intake and create more muscle and burn more fat, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, great point. And it also affects your hormone levels and things like that. Like depending on what age you are or, you know, for female or males, like if you've gone through menopause or not. Mm -hmm. So it really ties in together, like the sleep hygiene, the food activity. And it's a really interesting topic. And I do find that most people do try to think about the nutrition with the exercise, with the sleep, but sometimes they focus on one more than the other, right? Yeah. So because it's, it's a lot, right? It's a lot to do everything. It is. It's a lot, and we're all in the same boat, right? Yes. Like we all have to sleep, we have to eat, we have, you know, yeah. we try and to we, maintain our health, and we have to move. People don't, but they actually have to, right? Like that's the one thing. Exactly with goals. Okay, so so what do you see as trends for this year in terms of nutrition? Do you know what, Jamie? It's interesting because if you look up trends for this year, I'm seeing a lot of trends with, like we always see, eating with the season and that type of thing. I'm seeing a lot of trends in terms of upcycling. So using almost like a a clothing trend, like you, you know, you go to the Value Village or the Salvation Army and you use clothes that aren't new, that type of thing. So using things like your fruit pulp or using pea protein or oat pulp. Like if you're juicing, you use the pulp to make like quick breads, that type of thing. So sustainability, making sure you're not overusing, that's a big trend. Do you think that's being driven by increased food costs that people are just like, absolutely, like don't throw away the carrot greens, put them in a salad, right? Exactly. So it's rising food costs. And also when you tie in your health goals to food trends, I am seeing, and this is an interesting one, I don't know if you have seen this one, but getting back to eating more canned fish. Yeah. Have you read that? Canned lentils. So we always say it's really important to get your omega-3 fats 
for your brain health and, you know, anti-inflammatory, they're anti-inflammatory. So interestingly enough, I've been buying more canned fish, like canned mackerel in olive oil. I actually find delicious. You know, you don't know until you try it. Well, you know, there's a restaurant that actually cans their own fish. It's Oh, really? It's a fantastic restaurant, Bar Raval which is the yeah. same group as Bar Isabel. So it's small plates, right? So you can go in and you can get literally the canned mackerel from Spain, really? uh, which oh, is super wow. delicious. That's so like, so, so it isn't just at home. You can actually, I'm seeing it on menus in high-end restaurants. So Wow. And I think going along with the canned fish is also the canned chickpeas and lentils and that type of thing. Yep. And also in terms of other food trends, the pasta that's made with, as we say, the chickpeas, the lentils, just adding in more protein into your diet that's inexpensive. Yeah. Are you talking about making pastas with sauces that have the proteins? Or are you saying that the protein is actually going into the noodle? The protein's actually in the pasta. So there's a huge trend where you can buy different types of dry pasta that has legumes and lentils in it. So right away, the protein's higher in that. But you do have to be careful. I would suggest to read labels because regular pasta, Durham semolina, is high in protein. So not to go too off topic, but it's important if you are trying to increase your protein intake, read labels of what you're buying. And then as you say, look at recipes that also have the proteins that you add into the pasta. So I've always shied away from the non-traditional pastas because I find there's texture issues. With these yeah. with these legume pastas, are we approximating the al dente that you get from a traditional pasta? They're getting better, and I agree. Some of them just fall apart. Yeah. So that's why they do add rice and quinoa and different grains into the mix just to give it better texture and flavor. So it's a bit of a crapshoot. You have to try a few brands until you get there. And the other food trend, which I would love to kind of, you know, get people to eat more of this, is seaweed. So things like seaweed snacks or any sort of seaweed that you can make into a salad, that type of thing, because it's really mineral rich and just really healthy for us. Fantastic. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. What do you want to talk about next time you're on? Let's talk about chocolate and ginger. For February. Perfect. Yes. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss RSV and seniors on The Tonic. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. 
Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Jiahu is a public health physician, member of the Cleveland Clinic Canada's Medical Director Program, and co-founder of 19to0.ca. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to talk about something that's kind of been in the news after you know, a prolonged period of hearing about COVID-19. All of a sudden, you know, our hospitals are inundated with people with RSV. So I thought it would be helpful to bring an expert on the show and, and sort of talk about what that is and what the health ramifications are. So what is RSV? RSV stands for something called respiratory syncytial virus, a bit of a mouthful, but it's a, uh, you know, like influenza, like COVID, is a respiratory virus that gives you, you know, pretty similar symptoms to both those two that does tend to, you know, hit more in the fall and the winter and does tend to affect really young kids and, and older adults more severely. So it's nothing new, right? No, it's not. I mean, I've been kind of surprised, actually, at how much media attention it's gotten this year. It's not a bad thing, actually, but, I mean, RSV has always been with us. It's sort of always been known as one of the leading causes of hospitalization in really young kids in the fall and winter. Probably less appreciation in terms of how it affects the elderly, but it's also always sort of been known as something that can cause, like influenza, severe infection in, in those that are sort of 65 and over. I understood, like, we're hearing about it in, in the press because our hospitals are getting overrun with it. Is it that more a function of the state of our hospitals, or is it a particularly bad season for RSV? Yeah, no, and I think you raise a really good point there. I mean, we are having a pretty bad season with RSV, also with flu as well, and COVID always sort of, uh, you know, floating in the background, leading to this thing called a triple-demic. But certainly... You know, when it comes to sort of RSV this season, what we saw sort of was quite an early, early surge, quite a high surge. And that sort of went hand in hand with flu cases really going kind of through the roof, actually. And the combination of those two plus sort of baseline COVID led to really, really severe levels of hospitalizations, particularly for younger children. And sort of this time, this go around in the media, you'll see that the problem, the places we have the most problems sort of are pediatric hospital wait times, pediatric ICUs, we're being to cancel pediatric surgeries and stuff. But I mean, adults remain affected, but it, it certainly has been sort of a confluence of factors that has led this respiratory season to be particularly bad compared to, uh, you know, not just the past few years, but, the, you know, the, the few years before COVID when we sort of had this stuff circulating. I understand, though, at the other end of the spectrum, it's problematic as well. So like in long-term care facilities, it's also an issue. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, I think before this pandemic, I'll say, you know, I, I think the thing that we were really worried about were any sort of respiratory outbreaks in long-term care. We saw lots of COVID outbreaks, obviously, and those were quite devastating. But before COVID, uh, we had flu outbreaks, we had RSV outbreaks. And, you know, I think maybe the easiest way to think of RSV, and, and it, it's still something, you know, that we don't have a perfect grasp of the burden of disease on because we haven't always been testing for it. But it might be easy to think of RSV as very similar to influenza, you know, it hospitalizes, you know, tens of thousands of Canadians every year, actually. You know, leading causes does also lead to significant rates of mortality, especially in older adults. And certainly in the long-term care setting, it's one of the sort of chief culprits of a, you know, respiratory virus outbreak along with influenza. 
influenza, some of the other uh, respiratory viruses. So why do you think it's become particularly bad in the long-term care facilities this year? Is it a function of everybody's immunity sort of being down because they're cloistered or they've been busy fighting COVID or, or is there something else going on? Yeah, really, really good question. I think that like our sort of our best theories are that, you know, over the past two years or whatever, since we started locking things down for COVID, which would have been the spring of 2020, people just haven't been exposed to RSV, to flu, to really, you know, anything that wasn't COVID-19. And, you know, I think sort of the sort of reopening combined with, you know, the winter season and particularly bad seasons that combined to lead to both a pretty bad sort of series of, uh, you know, outbreaks and severe sort of season for RSV, you know, across the age range. And so just say, yeah, it's most likely because we haven't been exposed to anything like this for the past few years. So theoretically, then, if that's true, then I guess as it spreads, the immunity will build back up, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, we hope so, right? I hope so, yeah. (laughs) Uncharted territory, but one assumes, right, like it could just be a really bad season, but I do think the fact that we haven't been exposed to RSV or flu or anything else it's probably leading to contributing to this in some way. So if you're an older Canadian, what are the health risks of getting RSV? You know, I think a lot of the symptoms and the, the risks are pretty similar to flu or COVID, right? So in the very short term, you might get trouble breathing, you might develop a fever, it might have a cough, you know, and you might have some more typical symptoms too, right? You just you might just have a generalized fatigue. If it gets sort of sick, worse bad enough, you know, you may end up going to the emergency department, going to the hospital, being admitted. And and once you're there, you know, I I think that what tends to happen is if you're older, you know, anytime you go to hospital, you tend to leave hospital with a bit less function than you had coming in. And you do see sort of some declines in functional health outcomes, you know, ability to take care of oneself as well. But, you know, this is sort of pretty similar to what we might see with flu or, or COVID. And so it's definitely something to be, you know, be concerned about. I mean, I'd say in general, these respiratory viruses are something that older adults and, and really young people should be concerned about. Are the health risks of catching RSV if you're older, are they as significant as with COVID? Like, is it that dangerous? You know, it's hard to do a head-to-head comparison because right now we don't have that good of a read on the total burden disease for RSV. It's not something that we've really started testing for. And really to know how bad something is, you're going to get a test for it. But I would say that, you know, it definitely does lead to tens of thousands of hospitalizations to that population. The thing with COVID is that I think that it is a lot less severe nowadays, you know, partly because it's morphed to Omicron, but partly because our older population, they've had usually three, four, sometimes even five vaccines, and that's really mitigating severity of COVID in that population. Okay, so would you say that the older Canadians are more at risk for complications for RSV? Or, or... I mean, I, I would say that it's hard to, like, do a head-to-head comparison, you know, like, what is more serious now, COVID or flu or RSV? It might depend on, you know, the time of the year, right? Like, when we have a surge of cases, right? It might depend on sort of one's vaccination status. But I don't think we have a really good reading, actually, to be honest, on sort of what we, I'd say is all-cause mortality from RSV in the older population. So as a virus, like, I presume the V stands for virus, so is it treatable, RSV? Like, how do you treat it? Only through supportive means right now. So when it comes to RSV, you know, when I say supportive, in the hospital, that means, you know, getting oxygen, getting fluids, you know, treating any secondary bacterial infection. 
but there's no specific treatment for RSV in, in older adults. There is something that's given to really, really premature infants. If they get RSV, uh, it's a monoclonal antibody. But for most of the population, there is no specific treatment other than, you know, providing general supportive care. And that is a bit different from COVID where, you know, we have treatments like Paxlovid and right. a little bit different than influenza where we have something like Tamiflu. Okay, so I guess part of the problem this year is if you're getting sick, everybody's mind goes, okay, I'm getting COVID, right? So you take the COVID test and it shows negative because you don't have COVID, you have RSV. So what are people to do? Like, how do you test to make sure you have RSV? Like, what do you do? It's pretty hard to test, right? Like, I mean, I I think that right now we have a lot of COVID rapid tests. Right. Um, But I would say that in the current state, influenza and RSV, or certainly influenza right now, RSV maybe a month ago, causing a lot more illness than COVID is. And so a lot of the times you really can't unless your your physician has some way of has rapid tests to test you, which is pretty rare. Sometimes a doctor will do sort of a, a viral PCR to test for all three. But usually we don't actually often test for everything. You know, we'll test for COVID still because, you know, if you are COVID positive, we can give you treatments. For something like RSV where there's no specific treatment, you know, a lot of the times we won't do the test because it won't necessarily change how we manage the patient. If you do end up going to the emergency department, though, or getting admitted, God forbid, then you do tend to sort of be tested for all this panel of respiratory viruses. And, And so it's difficult for people to actually know what they have because, you know, hard to find a test that test for all three and also they have very similar symptoms yeah to me this is the biggest issue like you don't know what you have you probably think you have covid but you're not testing positive but you're feeling unwell and that's probably not good so assume that you understand that you have rsv if you're unlucky enough to get it is there a way to reduce the respiratory disease burden is there a way to mitigate Well, I would say once you have the disease, you know, there's little one can do other than, you know, generally staying hydrated, making sure, you know, oxygen levels are okay. And and so there's no specific treatment. I think a lot of the sort of what one can do is sort of in prevention, right? And when it comes to sort of things we can do to prevent getting RSC or COVID or flu, I would say, you know, top of that list is, you know, like vaccination, whether for COVID or flu. There's no vaccine for RSV yet, but there should be one actually within the next year or two. And so soon there'll be a vaccine for all three of these. And I will say that despite very, 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 very high cases of influenza. That's probably the number one virus right now across Canada. You know, vaccination rates for COVID, is, uh, for, sorry, influenza, really, really low still. And so I would say get all your recommended vaccines. You know, I think another thing people can do to prevent is just, you know, with the sort of general respiratory etiquette we've been advising, you know, hand washing, not coughing on other people. If you are really immunocompromised or in some way, maybe wearing a mask in certain social settings. And then lastly, just generally doing things to stay healthy, getting enough sleep, eating healthy, you know, make sure you're sort of well hydrated. And so, you know, prevention, I think, is really the, the key here. Once you have RSV, for example, I mean, there's there's little one can do while at home. For most people, it will kind of blow over. Some will sort of unfortunately be hospitalized. But, you know, it's, it's we don't really have any specific treatments for it yet. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on and edifying. You're welcome. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the modifiable risks of dementia on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. 
Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Jay Ingram is a Canadian author, renowned broadcaster, and member of the Order of Canada. He's an engaging speaker who can address complex scientific issues in non-technical terms, which has led him to advocate for early detection and reducing the risks of dementia. He's fascinated by the condition and in trying to understand its effects on the brain. Welcome to the show, Jay. How are you? Good. Thank you, Jamie. So let's get right into it. What are the risks for Alzheimer's slash dementia, which aren't quite the same things? And actually, let me set just a very quick background, because I think most people may not even be aware that they may be doing things or that their lifestyle might predispose them a little bit to dementia, because, you know, there's a fairly prevalent feeling that, well, you get old, you get dementia, you die, and there's really nothing you can do about it. And while it is true that there are no treatments that are really very effective right now, there are hopes, but they don't exist, there are many things you can do to reduce your risk. Up to about 40% of your total risk for dementia, you can do something about. So I think the best way to think of them is kind of at, at what point are you in your life and what are the major risks at that point? And for many of us, unfortunately, one of the most important risks is stopping education too early. So, for instance, if you were someone who, for a variety of reasons, had to drop out of school at grade eight and didn't go any further, then that accounts for maybe six or seven percent of that 40 percent of your risks that might predispose you to dementia. Of course, you know, I I often talk to people who, groups of people who are in their 60s and 70s and are concerned about dementia, and it's kind of depressing for them to hear that, well, you know, how far they went in school, that's not something that they can retrieve. And so far, it's not clear that engaging your mind with games like Sudoku or Wordle or crossword puzzles can make up for that. So that's important. The next most important is hearing loss, and this has only recently been recognized. So I actually have some hearing loss. I wear hearing aids. The good news is that if you wear hearing aids, it looks like you can reduce that risk. But that risk is, like, significant, you know, 5 or, or 6% of your total. So those are the two big ones. It's quite a long list, and, you know, maybe we can break it up a bit. But I would say that once you get into the 30s and 40s, probably the most important risk, and it is something you can do something about, is high blood pressure. You know, it has so many effects on health, as you know, anyway, that people don't think about, you know, an oncoming possibility for dementia. But uh, hypertension is really critical. And then there's a whole variety. And if you'd like me to go on with those, I could. Okay, well, maybe we'll circle back to that. But I think a lot of people think that there's a hereditary component to dementia. Is that the case? There is, but I think the most important thing that you can say about the hereditary component is that a very small percentage of 
dementia, and let's focus for the moment on Alzheimer's. Yep. About 1% or maybe 1.5% of all Alzheimer's is absolutely genetically determined. It doesn't just tilt your risk. There are genes that if you inherit them, you will get its early onset familial Alzheimer's, that's what it's called, mm. you will get it. But it's really important to remember if your mother or your father didn't get early onset dementia, then they didn't have this gene and you're not going to have it. And so then what happens in terms of the genetics is, well, like my mother had Alzheimer's, there's a possibility that I inherited a gene from her that might raise my risk. But honestly, the risk, the extra risk that I might have, I can cope with or compensate for by trying to reduce my risk in other areas. So I would actually, you know, I get a lot of people saying to me, well, my great aunt Bertha had Alzheimer's. Am I going to get it? And, you know, my answer really is there's a, a small, a tiny chance that maybe some combination of genes that she had may have been passed down through your parents, but it's just not something that you should actually start to worry about. So genetics do play a role, and they're part of the sort of 60% of your risk that you can't control, but it's very uncertain for each, for any individual, just how important the genetics is. So you talked about the risks that you can control. So what are some of those ways that we can reduce risks? Okay, so, and these are, I'd say the ones that you can absolutely have something, some control over, besides hearing loss, as I've mentioned, are things like smoking. I mean, you'd think by now that we all know that smoking's bad for you in any number of ways. But smoking is a risk for dementia and especially even if you quit smoking relatively late in life like um, I don't know 60 you can still lower that couple of percent or three percent risk that you're taking on by smoking physical activity you know uh, Jamie it's hard actually to enumerate exactly what these risks are because physical activity help and actually uh, you know improves your health in many ways sure and it may be an indirect effect. It's not a strict, okay, if I'm not active, I'm going to get dementia. But staying physically active and staying socially engaged when you get older, and this is a big issue. Right. Women live longer than men, and that's why more women have Alzheimer's than men, because the men have died of heart disease or cancer or other things. And unfortunately, when you're a widow, your social life is changed and reduced and it's super important to keep socially engaged it keeps your mind going and it can actually act as a hedge against dementia so that's another one and if you have diabetes treat it super important on that alcohol now this is an interesting one because it's really only been clearly identified as a risk for dementia in the last few years but if you are drinking more than let's say two standard drinks a day, and by standard I mean you know, a five or six ounce glass of wine, so two of those, two shots or uh, two beers. If you're drinking more than that, you should really think seriously about getting below that two drinks a day level. So I think if you sort of stand back and look at this, 
you know, a lot of these are things that we kind of already know. Don't drink too much, stay active, stay mentally active, all of that. And you can really control those. It's up to you. I mean, there are some other risks like traumatic brain injury. I mean, if you've had one, you can't do anything about that. But, you know, if you're riding bikes or motorcycles and you're careful to wear a helmet, that would be a precaution that you should take. So it's a mix of things that might have already happened to you, but there are also things that you can control. One of the things that you talked about, you said earlier, like doing crosswords and Sudoku's, which I do religiously every day, doesn't really help. And I understand that's the case because once you have done these puzzles, you kind of know the way to do them. Therefore, you're not learning. But I understood like learning to play an instrument or learning a new language, which actually fires up the synapses actually can help as well. Are you aware of that or am I incorrect? Yeah, well, um, no, no, that's right. And I wouldn't say, I'd say the jury is out about Sudoku and stuff like that. But the difference is, and staying in school longer, let's say up to, even up to grade 12, is when the brain is really developing. Of course. And so that's a key opportunity to bombard it with information and ways of thinking that will actually set you know, give your brain a certain amount of what's called brain reserve that will help you uh, later in life. Bilingualism has definitely been shown to be advantageous. I'm not sure of data about music. And as I said, these things are really hard to quantify because you've got to have a large number of people. You've got to follow them for a number of years to see who develops dementia and who doesn't. But it wouldn't surprise me because in a sense, Music is a different language, just like learning, you know, French or German or whatever is a different language. And um, the more the more different kinds of activity that your brain engages in, the better. And you know what? I mean, this list that we've sort of gone through has expanded even over the last three or four years. And I have no doubt that eventually new factors will be found and hopefully many of those will be things that we can actually act on. Agreed. We have time for one last quick question and that is what would be the impact if Canadians made a concerted effort to reduce the risks that we've identified? So it'd be hard to quantify it in terms of dollars but clearly let's say that by reducing risk you lengthen the healthy life of people by three or four or even five years. That would mean that the impact on the healthcare system would be dramatically reduced because, you know, frankly speaking, many people would die before they even need care for dementia. It would reduce the impact on caregivers who are beleaguered, to put it mildly, and I'm talking both about professional caregivers and family caregivers. And the cost savings would be enormous, but the savings in emotion and grief would also be substantial. And when you look at them, you know, things like cut down a little bit on your drinking, try to stop smoking, things like that. The impact collectively, as you said, would be enormous. It it would really make a big impact if we all did that. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Okay. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Andrea Donsky, Shauna Lindzen, Dr. Jai Hugh, and Jay Ingram. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. 
To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The January-February issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit the website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Bussin wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.